Well, hello there, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles, for all of us who are looking for faith and spirituality outside the fences and beyond the walls of institutional Christianity. Before we get into this episode, I would like to just quickly remind you that you can find all of the content that our team is creating for our community on our website, accidentaltomatoes.com. You can go there to find not only every episode of the podcast, but also a variety of articles on all kinds of issues regarding faith and justice and liberation. And if you're inspired by our work and you'd like to support us, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts or visit us on Patreon at patreon.com slash accidental tomatoes to learn how you can help us create and curate the content that we are um, putting out there to help folks navigate the difficulties of spiritual trauma and deconstruction. Accidental Tomatoes is the official content site for New Wineskins, a non-traditional liberation-oriented online faith community rooted in deep, authentic conversation and contemplative practices. New Wineskins is a member of the Reconciling Ministries Network and is open to anyone seeking to explore faith and spirituality on a deeper level. If you're looking for a community where you can express your deepest doubts, ask your hardest questions, and be welcomed unconditionally, feel free to visit one of our weekly Zoom gatherings. You can learn more by visiting newwineskinsnetwork.org. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Uh, We had a conversation with my good friend, Matt Johnson, um, and Matt's doing some really significant work in in the world of um, recovery housing. But um, So we're going to talk about that, but we're also going to talk uh, a lot about language and stigma and all of those things that become a barrier uh, for folks who are seeking recovery from substance use disorder. So there's a lot of great information packed into this episode, so let's get right to it. Please give a warm Accidental Tomatoes welcome to Matt Johnson. Faith kind of calls us to be people of compassion. Faith calls us to, to see the worth and dignity of each person, whether they are in recovery or not, right? People who use drugs are loved by God, full stop. Well, hey there, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. And I am so excited to introduce you all to a good friend of mine, Matt Johnson. Uh, Matt is doing some really, really interesting work with recovery housing um, and and things around that. I don't want to give too much away. I want Matt to be able to tell his own story. But Matt, I'm so excited for you to join me for this episode of the podcast. Welcome to Accidental Tomatoes. So good to see you. Thanks, Joe. It's good to see you. I'm glad to to get a chance to sit down and to talk about recovery and recovery housing. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. So I'm excited about it. Yeah, very good. So um, so why don't you tell the folks what it is, you know, who you are, a little bit about who you are and what and kind of what your background is and and what it is you're doing. And then we'll kind of jump into the conversation. So my name's Matt Johnson. I'm the United Methodist pastor. I live in Morgantown, West Virginia. I've been here eight and a half years. Uh, When I came to Morgantown, I, I served at a church and um, several years into the into my work at the church, we began to realize that the church needed to play a role in recovery in our communities. Um, you know, as many people know, the opioid epidemic continues to spike, and particularly in West Virginia, the opioid epidemic is is uh, uh, just a, a public health crisis. And so we thought, what can the church do? Uh, we started a Celebrate Recovery program, and out of that Celebrate Recovery program, I began to meet people who lived in a local recovery house. And I'll tell you the honest truth. I didn't know that recovery houses were a thing at that point. I didn't know that they existed oh, wow. in our community. Yeah. Like I, I wasn't aware of it. 
begin to meet these folks. And honestly, um, I would they, they would come into a summer recovery program. They'd be there two or three weeks, and then they would be gone. And I would say, what happened to so-and-so? And they would say, oh, they went back out. And it became evident to me that we needed to do work around providing more uh, support and care and assistance for folks that were kind of making their way in recovery. And so uh, we felt called to open a faith-based recovery house. And I began to work on that the very first week of the COVID pandemic. Uh, a year later, we opened uh, a network of faith-based recovery houses here in Morgantown. It started with about 10 beds and now is 30 beds. We grew from 10 to 30 and about 10 beds to about 30 beds in about a year. Uh, and then in July of this year, I joined the Fletcher Group as the National Director of Faith-Based Initiatives. Uh, the Fletcher Group is an organization that was founded by the former governor of Kentucky, Ernie Fletcher. And we work in 45 states across the country, uh, providing technical assistance, support, and programming around recovery and recovery housing and recovery ecosystems. So we help communities develop safe and sustainable recovery housing in their community that can meet the needs of the people that uh, that are there. That's so interesting. Um, so you, there were a couple of things you said there that I kind of want to circle back to. Yeah. Um, and, and the first thing was that, you know, in your work with, with your church community, um, that, you know, as you recognized um, there was there was an issue, you know, with um, not only with with substance use disorder, um, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about language here right. in a minute too, um, but also with um, a, a lack of adequate recovery housing, right? And 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 you, and you said something uh, to the effect of your church felt called. I guess that would be sort of mm-hmm. our religious language um, to do something about that. What what do you think it was about sort of the makeup of your congregation? That um, that I guess made them aware of in the first place that there was something that they could do, and also to motivate them as a faith community to do something. Yeah, so I think one of the one of the mo- most powerful things that we can do in the church is be willing to see and to see to to really see people because we can play denial for as long as we want, right? We can act like there are not problems in our community. We can act like there are not issues that we're facing and we can overlook people and overlook the concerns of people, which means that we're overlooking needs of justice and compassion and care on a regular basis. And so to be really willing to see people is such an important piece. Um, I, I think about, you know, Matthew 9, where Jesus saw the crowds and he was filled with compassion. And when we can actually see see people, the, the movement of compassion and justice begins to stir inside of us. Mm-hmm. The congregation I served at that point was a was a fairly affluent upper middle class congregation. And so they had a lot of resources, but not necessarily a lot of um, connection to the community. They, they they wanted to have that, but were kind of figuring out how to do that. Part of part of what happened was, I mean, the opioid epidemic in West Virginia became such a, a crisis that we couldn't ignore it anymore. You know, there wasn't a way to yeah, ignore yeah. it anymore. And and most people have some connection to to someone who's struggled with a substance use disorder. Um, you know, and, and the numbers that, that we see continue to rise. So you know, this year there one there's been 110,000 overdose overdose deaths in our country and most people think that's undercounted. Uh, so it's hard to ignore that. It's hard to ignore that that as a as an issue in our community. So when we began to, to really engage with that, we began to see that there was a need for compassion and justice and rightness. 
in that congregation, one of the unique things about that congregation, when you walk into that, that building, uh, around the lobby are the, the words from Matthew 25. Um, when, when I, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When you did this for the least of these, you did it for me. And that really is a driving kind of motivation in the way that that faith community operates. There are folks in our community who are the least of these, folks that are struggling, live on the margins, and we have a responsibility to be engaged in the work of compassion and justice and care. Mm. That, you know, that kind of brings me to you. You recently published an article on um, the United Methodist News Service website. And um, and one of the things you said in that, and I want to kind of just read this quote, because I think it, it really um, goes with what you just said. But um, the, the quote from the article is, what would you say if I told you that your congregation already possesses mm-hmm. all the gifts and abilities needed to partner with God in restoring the lives of those in need? What if you already had everything you need to create the transformative community partnerships that can reinvigorate your mission and give it new meaning? The size of your organization doesn't matter because the opportunity to engage is all around us. We only need to see it. Yeah. I I just think that's such a powerful statement um, because I think a lot of times people, even if they see the problem, and and I, I, I pastored a church that was sort of in, in that, um, in that space one time where very small congregation, um, sort of semi-rural, kind of between rural and suburban um, setting, um, you know, and and um, substance use issues, all you know, Everywhere. people within the congregation yeah. related to, um, yep. you know, all of that. And and there was a lot of that, like, you know, we, we prayed for those people every Sunday. Um, we prayed every time we had a Bible study and stuff. But there was just this feeling of hopelessness that, like, we just don't have the resources to, other than just to write checks to organizations, mm-hmm. which isn't a bad right. thing. But, right. um, but there was sort of that sense that, like, it's just it's too overwhelming for us. So I love this statement about, like, no matter how big you are, there's something you can do, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, there is something you can do, and particularly in rural areas where there are not as many um, opportunities for people to access resources that they need for recovery and, and rehab and treatment. Right. So in rural areas, there is a deep need for that work. So um, one of those things could be, you know, finding places to partner with Um, in rural areas in West Virginia. And this is true across the country. One of the major needs that people face is transportation. Okay, so when folks are in recovery, they don't have transportation to get to what they need and to where where they need to go. So a, a church can say, hey, I can drive somebody to a doctor's appointment. I can drive somebody to a meeting. I can drive some. That is a huge gift to someone. Wow. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's little stuff like that, but that would be a huge gift to a recovery house or a recovery entity in your community because that's not there if we don't do it otherwise. That's not a big deal. Maybe a church has, maybe a church, you know, 15 years ago was thriving and they bought a church van and now that church van sits on their property and gets used one day a week. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a gift that you could offer somebody that you have. Maybe you've got a, a group of, of women or men in the church that say, we'd like to, we like to provide a meal, uh, providing a meal to an entity or to an organization. That's, that's a powerful thing. Maybe there's a few people in your church that have raised kids and know what it looks like to parent and to raise kids. And they're willing to help someone else, mentor someone else, teach someone else what it looks like to be a parent. That's an opportunity as many people are trying to put their lives back together to gain custody of their children or to, or really to break generational 
purses around addiction yeah, yeah. with their kids. How can we teach that? How can we mentor? How can we be engaged in that work? These are not things that cost tons of money. These are our programs of to say, but it's we're going to make a meal once a week. We're going to make a meal and invite people to come. We're going to make a meal and take it to them. We're going to provide some transportation. We're going to let people use our space. Some some churches in rural communities have parsonages that sit empty. They've got you know two or three pastors that yeah, are one yeah. church, and they've got a house. They know what to do with it. That house can be used to house people in recovery, and that's a powerful thing that can happen. So these are not earth-shattering ideas by any means, but it's a willingness to see the need and to say, what do we have? What do we have in our hand already? Is it is it hospitality? Is it welcome? Is it, you know, relationships? Is it community where people can be engaged and involved? You know, one of the powerful pieces um, that that drives recovery in communities is the ability to be connected. Isolation mm-hmm. is is deadly when it comes to substance use disorder. And so to be placed into a community and to be connected in a community and to know that there are people that care about you is one of the driving driving factors of recovery. And one of the ways that we can see that recovery actually happens and, and works and matters. And so for a church just to say, well, we'll be your community. We'll be a place where you can come and experience welcome, experience care, and know that you belong. Um, that's a powerful statement to make. Yeah, and yeah. A church can do that. A group of people can do that and make a huge impact. Yeah, I, I, I think that's so important to understand that. I, sometimes we just get this idea that if we can't do everything, we can't right. do anything. Right. And and everything that you just described are those really simple, small, seemingly small steps that can have, you know, collectively those things have such a big impact. Right. Um, but even individually they do, right? It's sometimes for a lot of folks, um, it's for a lot of folks, I suspect it's just that, oh my God, somebody cares about me. Oh, like it's in a way that they have never experienced before. Right. Yeah. Somebody offered me a ride. Who does that? You know? Who does that? Yeah. 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 Well, even a church could say, you know, a small church could say, hey, we're willing to, to fund people who come in to get their state ID. OK. A lot of people that are in recovery don't have a state ID that's accessible to them because they've lost it. Something's happened to it. It's been stolen. It's disappeared. And so somebody comes into, goes into rehab and comes into, and comes into pursuing long-term recovery without a state ID. So they need to somehow either get their birth certificate, their social security card, and their state ID in order to be able to get a job. How do they get the money or the funding to get their birth certificate, their social security card, and their state ID without a job? It becomes this really difficult cycle. Yeah, yeah. For about 30 bucks, a church can say, we'll help that person get a state ID. That, that's not a huge commitment of money or resources, mm-hmm. but it changes somebody's life. I mean, it is a game changer for people when it comes to putting their lives back together and being able to find employment, to open a bank account, to do the things that they need to do to sustain their life. Wow. So, I mean, that's, again, for church to say, yeah. we will do that in our community. That'd be a gift. Yeah, that's massive. That's so important. That's so important. Um, I've got like five different directions my brain's trying to go, <laughs> sure. but I want to, I do want to come back. There was one other statement that you made in kind of your opening remarks that I wanted to, um, to just unpack just a little bit. Um, because you said what, what your, your specific work, um, yeah. is with what you called faith-based recovery houses. And I think there's a distinction there that some folks might need a little bit of a, a def- definition for, because I, I suspect that you do not mean by that. We're going to proselytize all of these people, 
Um, you know, they, they come in. We're, we're, we're not going to force you to sit through a Bible study, you know, through your recovery, right? So Absolutely. what do you mean when you when you use that phrase, faith-based recovery? So when I talk about that, what I really mean is it is, it is our faith that kind of drives us as people to be engaged in the work. And the faith that we have so, um, helps us create values around dignity, compassion, care, and justice that are engaged in the overall culture of that organization or that house. And so it's less about forcing our faith on someone and more about living out our faith in a way that allows people to, to engage and to be engaged with, with the work around them. And so faith kind of calls us to be people of compassion. Faith calls us to, to see the worth and dignity of each person, whether they are in recovery or not, right? People who use drugs are loved by God, full stop. I don't care whether you're in recovery, I don't care if you're not, you're loved by God. And we yeah. need to be reminded of that. Our faith calls us to, to give people second and third and fourth and fifth and tenth and twentieth chances. Because part of the way that we understand our faith is that we are people that have been given chances and, and opportunities for new life. And so we we kind of lean into that. And so faith forms the way that we think about the world, we think about people, and we think about kind of connection and community. And so the, the culture that we create in those houses invites people, welcomes people, cares for people, provides for people in a way that um, kind of brings them in. So it's less about believe this, believe this, believe this. It's more about the values that, that underpin what we do are deeply rooted in faith practices and in faith, you know, in, in faithful work. And so that's why we treat people and care for people in the way that we do. Yeah. It, it reminds me of that old um, attributed to St. Francis quote, whether he ever said it or right. not, but, you know, proclaim the gospel at all times. And sometimes you use words, right? Right. Um, but, but, but what you're doing, and, and this is what I think is so important about that work and, and the context that we're talking about is um, that it really is a living out, you know, as, as people who are trying to transform the world, not by creating converts, right? Mm -hmm. um, and for those of us who are in these deconstruction spaces yeah. that we talk about a lot here on Accidental Tomatoes, like it's not about creating converts. It's about living out whatever faith it is that you have mm -hmm. in, a, in a way that is transformative. Whether that other person ever says, you know what? That makes me want to believe in Jesus. Doesn't matter, right? Doesn't right. matter. Right. What matters is you're giving them a chance to make positive changes in their life. And they're going to do with it whatever they're going to do with that. But, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. kind of the way that, that I think about that. Now, of course, there are organizations that think about that differently. But from my perspective, sure, yeah. you know, engaging the faith community in the mission, in the, in the work that exists in our community, and developing these spaces where our faith forms the way that we think about people and the world and how we engage with, with that work is so important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, shift directions a little bit here. Um, one of the other things that we we've used the term, um, substance use disorder yeah. several times already in this conversation. And, and, um, there is this, this, the language that we use is so important here. Right. Right. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about why it is so important because you know I, I some people will listen to that and they'll say oh it's just you know woke bs or whatever uh, right. political correct whatever blah 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 but it's important language means something right language is important yeah um yeah so so can you help us sort of understand that a little bit so sure so um rabbi 
Abraham Joseph Heschel says that words create worlds. And so the words, mm-hmm. the language that we use creates the worlds that we live in. Uh, the language that we use forms our opinions, our thoughts, our actions. It has a lot to do with what happens. When it comes to um, substance use, one of the things that we think is we have to remember that people are not the problem. Okay. People are not the problem. People have a disease. People have a problem, but people are not the problem. And so the ways that we change our language to be person centric offers dignity, connection, and, um, and, and really cares for people in a meaningful way. So, um, I, I don't ever use the word addict uh, because addict creates a lot of stigma about who a person is or what they are or, you know, what they've done. We talk about a person who has a substance use disorder. We talk about a person that, that, you know, is living with that, with that disorder that again, it creates that sense of, of dignity to not say, well, you're just an addict, but you're, you're a person, right. with substance, a person with a substance use disorder. Um, I, you know, in my work around housing, um, I don't talk about halfway houses. Uh, a halfway house is almost always viewed as a de- as a detriment to a community, right? It's, it's mm. not ever viewed pot in a positive light in many communities. We talk about recovery housing. Recovery housing talks about a wholeness of a person, right? So we're helping someone think about uh, recovery that connects them to employment, uh, community, uh, recovery services. Um, we're talking about ways that they can connect with parenting classes and learn life skills. And recovery is a much larger idea than just they're not using substances. It's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. a rebuilding of a life, right? Uh, we don't talk about somebody having clean time. Um, because people are not clean or yeah, dirty. Yeah, that's a big one. That's yeah. a big one. Yeah, People yeah. are not clean or dirty, right? And so how, how much time does somebody have where they've been pursuing sobriety or pursuing recovery? Absolutely. But people are not clean and dirty, right? And then there's these mm. words that we just use that are ugly. I mean, junkie. That's a terrible word. It should never be used in a, in a way that talks about a person. It just It just degrades and cuts down people. And so the way that we talk about people should always strive to acknowledge the sacred worth and dignity that each person contains just in the fact that they're loved by God. And so changing our language really changes the way that we think about the world and changes the way that we think about people in, in a powerful way. And so I would really encourage, if I can really encourage anything, it's to begin to incorporate this this language into our way of talking so that we're not mm. using those words that degrade, but talking about the real issues at hand. Yeah. You know, as you say that, it reminds me like within recovery is not the only place where this is important, right? Oh, no. This is the same conversation we have about, you know, using people's preferred pronouns. And, you know, like even in church where one of the things I've talked about a ton is like the, the process that I personally went through trying to learn not to use gendered language for, for the divine, right? For God, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, and the point of all, and the reason I say all that is it always feels awkward at first because we all have these linguistic habits, right? We just do. And it it doesn't help to beat ourselves up over them, but, it, but at some point you have to, you know, hear the words that come out of your mouth and think about how other people are hearing those words, right? Absolutely. And, and, Joe, stigma, stigma around substance use disorder is such a problem in our communities in general. Uh, and stigma often stops people from getting the, the, the treatment and the help that they need because they're unwilling, because they don't want to engage with what's happening. So stigma is a huge, huge concern. And changing our language reduces stigma. And reducing stigma saves lives. Mm. Reducing stigma saves lives. 
Um, no one should die because stigma stopped them from seeking treatment. Like that's a that's something that we should absolutely be aware of. And and, re- and faith based stigma, religious stigma, when it comes to, to substance use disorder, is a real thing. Uh, and whether we had whether we we have lived it out or whether it is the perception of who we are, that's important. And so changing our language reduces stigma, and by reducing stigma. We save lives. So this is not, again, we're not doing this just to be woke. We're doing this because it changes the way that people are perceived, changes the way that we think about people and talk about people, and it gives people access to resources that they need to literally live. This is a life and death conversation. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought up stigma because I think I think that's another um, a, another part of this whole conversation that, um, that really deserves some time. You know, I, as, as you were saying that, I was thinking – you know, st- st- yeah, language is the root of a lot of stigma, but it's not the only thing. Like I was thinking one of the, one of the ways we stigmatize people in recovery in, in some church environments is that we have this savior complex that we bring to the work. Right. Oh, and, and I think, and I think that's rooted in stigmatization. Don't you? I do. I think that there's this savior complex that we bring to the work, but, but I think that one of the biggest pieces of stigma that we that we, that we see is that we see uh, a substance use disorder as a moral failing. Mm, and so yeah. we say, because this person has used substances in the past, they have somehow had a moral failing and they are not worthy of filling the blank, right? right. We become right, suspicious. Right. We become cynical. We've decided that people are a lost cause. We've decided that it's a sign of weakness. And so we, we believe that we are often... Uh, better than someone else. We decided that we have the moral high ground in the conversation because we haven't done that. You know, I'm reminded of, of uh, Jesus' parable in Luke 19, where he tells the, the story of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the Pharisee goes to pray and says, thank God I'm not yeah, like yeah. these people, right? And, yeah. and, and so much of our stigma is saying, well, thank God I'm not like that. Um, yeah, yeah. And missing out on that. And so I think that, that um, you know, and listen, as now I'm, I'm a Methodist, right? Methodists were deeply involved in the temperance movement for so long that I think some of our our unwillingness to see people is still connected to that um, to that mm. that temperance movement from yeah, yeah. from back in the day, right? To say, well, anything you know, that's a moral failing. That person's a sinner. That person is fill in the blank, and it causes people to to not be able to be seen. So I think that. That the, the the savior complex that says we can somehow fix people is a huge part of this, but I also just think that the, the unwillingness to engage because of the more because of a, we think this is a moral failing is a huge part of this. We have to really shift our our way of thinking. Substance use disorder is not a moral failing. It's a it's literally it's a a disease or a disorder that people struggle with and, and deal with all their lives. It's a chronic disorder in the same way that diabetes or Crohn's disease or something like that as a chronic disorder. We're providing the resources that people need to get better. Yeah. Yeah. I, and that, that's one of the things I think a lot of folks, I think there's an awakening to that. And I, and you know, that's, that's been needed for a long time. What would you say to those folks though, that, that would consent continue to exist in, I'm sorry, that would continue to insist that, you know, well, that's just, they've, they've made their choices, right? It's a, it's a choice that they make. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that you've never met someone who deals with a substance use disorder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I, I would say that, that you've never encountered somebody who's done that. And again, 
a part a part of that I say, I mean, I, part of part of that is 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 maybe tongue in cheek, but I would say that when you have an honest conversation with someone who has SUD or who has dealt with um, with substance use disorder, this is not the the life that they would choose for themselves. Yeah, exactly. That's this is not the life that they would choose for themselves. Over and over again, as I've been engaged and connected and talked to people, people say to me like, "That wasn't the life I wanted." But it was life that I had. Um, yeah. And, and, and sometimes that desperation and that despair and that just disconnect feels so strong that they can't get over it. This is not the life that, that the life that people live when dealing with a substance use disorder, um, when dealing with active use is not the life that anybody, anybody would choose for themselves. And so changing the way we think about that is really important. Yeah. Um, we're, we're starting to get close to the end of, of our time together here. Um, is there anything else that that you're working on that you really think you know um, that folks really need to know about? Something that would help um, faith communities kind of to have a clearer picture of this and and to be able to see what they can do to to be a part of of helping. Sure. So one of the pieces that I'm working on, and it's not it's not ready yet, but it's something that we hope to roll out soon, is actually a um, like a six week study for a small group, a, a faith organization, a mission team, a Sunday school class, a church, whatever group of people to do around stigma reduction and engagement. And so we think about what stigma looks like. We think about hospitality and hospitality as an act of Christian resistance, like hospitality mm. as an act of saying, we're going to break down the, the, the we're resisting the, the urge to, to develop barriers between people. We're going to engage with people in a deep way. We're not just setting up the China and, Kind of welcoming people, but we're engaging with strangers. We're engaging in the work, so that's such a powerful thing. So that's something that we're working on, and and we'll roll out here um, probably right around the first of the year that churches can start to use, or people of faith can start to use to really start to think about uh, that work in their community. Uh, you know, housing people is such a, a powerful thing, giving people that opportunity, and and many many places. Um, have resources that you know have housing that's happening so there's ways for people to partner you know if, if people want to learn more about that you know my whole job is to help people think about that and so people mm -hmm. can contact me and um, i'd be happy to share information about how they can be involved with that or get them connected more deeply to their community to kind of see what's happening um so you know that that's that's just kind of a quick overview of some things that we're working on but really developing these ecosystems where people can thrive and grow is so important very cool. Very cool. So if somebody wants to get in touch with you and have this kind of conversation and seek out the resources that are available, you know, through you and through your organization, yeah. um, where can folks find you? How can, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah. Our website is SledgerGroup.org. People can go to that website, emails, connections, tons of tools and resources that are available for free at that website. You know, one of the things I love to tell people is that our organization, my organization is fully grant funded. So I get to work with people across the country and it doesn't cost them a dime. Uh, and so we, we work in 45 states with a variety of different organizations that do this kind of work. And uh, we can provide all kinds of support and connection, consulting and engagement completely free. So I get to be a missional strategist for people in faith communities and it doesn't cost them a cent. And that's a pretty neat thing. That's outstanding. That's yeah. Outstanding. yeah. Well, Matt, thanks so much for uh, for sitting down and having this conversation with me. This is such important work, um, and, and I, I think a lot of what you said here today is really going to resonate with a lot of our listeners and, and hopefully so. inspire some folks to, you know, to see what they can do to get involved too. So, thanks again for for being here with us on Accidental Tomatoes. 
Thanks, Joe. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with one statement that I like to use across. Yeah, the- yeah, yeah. Jesus didn't come into the world to make bad people good. Jesus came to bring the dead to life. And what we are doing in recovery is bringing the dead to life. Um, whether it's literally with Narcan and harm reduction, whether it's letting people kind of experience life for the first time, live life on life's terms, whether it's helping people rebuild their life, we are part of God's work bringing the dead to life. And that's a pretty exciting thing. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. Well, thanks to Matt for such an interesting and informative conversation. So much um, good work being done there, um, not just in Morgantown, but but around the country with um, with faith based recovery housing, um, and and also this work, um, this really important work uh, of helping us break down the stigmas that become barriers to recovery. As always, if you have comments or feedback on this episode or suggestions for future episodes, please reach out to us on one of our social media channels, either Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Just do a search for Accidental Tomatoes. And you can drop us a note there, or you can send us an email to accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And so, my friends, until next time, keep on growing outside the fences and join us again for another brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes Podcast.